the emphasis on certain kinds of issues, environment, gender, you know, gay rights, um, you know, of course, the now the transgender business, um, the notion of, you know, feminism, all those ideologies, if the, the oligarchs are perfectly happy with that agenda, yeah. Yeah. what they don't want to deal with is the class and income inequality. That's where they have a, have a big problem. And, you know, I don't know how they're going to be able to, to deal with that. Without the class analysis, the, the, I think the point that you made, how many of these things oligarchs can live with, that's always a bad sign if, if yeah. the progressive critique can be incorporated and, and serve the interests of, of that extreme. Well, it's going to be, and then of course the, 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 the ultimate thing that they're looking at is just having, you know, everybody will get a check from Mark Zuckerberg mm. so they can live in their little apartment and play video games all day and maybe occasionally <laughs> drive for Uber until it gets automated. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's we, quite a vision of life. Yeah. No, I mean, that's right. I mean, that's, that's the, the, you know, the specter of uselessness and, and the way that, that universal basic income kind of massages that um, by not making everyone destitute, but just making them nearly destitute. Welcome to part three of Kalibunga, Tech, Drugs, and Capitalist Soul. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga's multi-part series on the Californian ideology. Two-thirds of the podcast, that is George Hoare and myself, Alex Hochuli, were in California in May 2019, thanks to the School of Humanities at the University of California, Irvine, to record sessions with the States of Wellness Research Group, who are critiquing the ideology of wellness today. As was hinted at in parts one and two, Wellness in part functions as a way of blaming people for their failures to be healthy, which relates quite closely to an increasingly rigid class structure. What's really happened is that the, um, the doors to a kind of stable social mobility narrative arc that was one of the pro- great promises of the American post-World War II period has completely shut for... Um, the most worthy members of aspiring, like working in middle class um, kids. But when you think about how that those, it's an infrastructural door that's shut, has that shutting of the door is internalized within each of you as a kind of personal failure, just as, you know, um, illness now or um, mood disorders or depression is internalized as a personal problem that needs to be solved and managed. This is what give, this is what produces and keeps reproducing in the publishing industry, both academic and popular, this narrative that um, the system is just and that those who make it are simply better than those who don't and that we don't care about those who don't. That is, that is the ideology of austerity. Catherine Liu there, convener of the States of Wellness Group and our very gracious host while we were in California. In this episode, we're going to move from the Californian ideology to exploring more of the Californian reality. This is both to discuss the material shifts that have given birth to some of the Californian ideas we've already discussed, as well as the social consequences of putting Californian ideology into practice, especially in terms of mobility and the built environment. 
Some of what you'll hear will not fit with the standard left-wing narrative on cars and suburbs, for instance. In a way, what we're doing is shedding a critical light on the social and economic liberalism of Californian ideology by referring to its opposite, a more culturally conservative and economically statist, even social democratic politics. In a way, this is what came before, between 1945 and 1973, which can in some ways be seen as the original golden age of the golden state. It was in that period, driven by industries such as aeronautics, that California was made great. Our current period, from the 1990s until today, is driven by information technology, and its boosters claim that it's another era of Californian greatness. But that greatness is obviously very one-sided, to say the least. Its social and especially psychic costs have been explored at length in parts 1 and 2 of Calibunga. Here we're going to talk a little bit more about the social costs. So first you're going to hear us talking to Joel Kotkin, fellow in urban studies at Chapman University in Orange, California. Most relevantly to what you'll hear here is the new class conflict and the pamphlet Californian Feudalism, The Squeeze on the Middle Class. Here's Joel on the idea of California. Well, California is sort of like the second America. It's, mm. it, it was, um, it, it developed um, well in advance of most of the West. Um, as uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, it was west of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really became kind of a parallel society because the initial settlement after, um, after the, um, the gold rush or uh, started by the gold rush was essentially people who came, in the most part, came around um, South America. So you had people coming from all sorts of parts of the world, obviously also from China. Mm-hmm. And so the settlement pattern is, is not as predictable as you have in the rest of the United States where people start in the east and they start moving mm-hmm. west. It's kind of like you, you sort of teleport yourself mm-hmm. into this completely different environment. And of course, California was also unique in the uh, you know, obvious natural relationship with Asia. Um, it had been a, 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 a Spanish and Mexican place, so it's it, it didn't have the British heritage that mm, had shaped yeah. so much of mm. American culture. It didn't have nearly as strong um, a Germanic influence. You know, the United States is really sort of historically a blending of the Germanic and the English. That's really where the mm. the, the culture comes from. Uh, sort of English political institutions and and, and German efficiency is kind of the combination, <laughs> I think. Um, but fundamentally, what what California represented was a, a, a new start. Um, mm-hmm. That's why people came here. They didn't like where they were. They mm-hmm. didn't, feel, you know, whether they were abro- coming from abroad or from the rest of the country. Actually, up until um, the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, L.A. in particular was not a big immigrant town. Mm-hmm. It was actually a very small percentage of the people were born outside the country. That changed obviously very dramatically. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I mean especially after the Second World War, which in a way ends up being a real boon to, to the United States as a whole, I mean, certainly relative to other important powers at the time. Right. Uh, California in particular becomes quite important then and becomes a bit of a boom area, right? I mean, it becomes a destination and for inward migration. So, I mean, I guess, is there something that distinguishes what one might call the Californian dream from, from a brighter American dream? Is it a subset of it? In, in, in that, in that maybe perhaps speaking specifically in that time of like the 1950s. Well, I mean, what California was, was, you know, I mean, it was certainly an extension of the American dream, but it brought with it characteristics that were not necessarily the, the um, typical. One, obviously, is 
the link to Asia and that whole influence is just a completely mm-hmm. different thing. You can't understand California's evolution without understanding the importance of, of the Asians, uh, not only in trade, but in horticulture, in, in, in gardening, in what things were planted here. Um, you know, when, if it was up to the Anglo's, they were built, they were still growing wheat in the Central Valley. I mean, you know, it was the Chinese and the Japanese and the, you know, later the Indians who said, oh, well, you know, actually, it's a really good place to grow, you know, whether almonds, apricots, um, pears. Um, and obviously, um, the Japanese were particularly very important in coastal California in, um, in developing the, um, the fruits, the, the fruits and vegetables. So. That, that, I think, is a, a, a major difference. Another one is, you, you know, you, if you moved from Boston to Detroit, you might have done it for economic reasons, but you certainly didn't go for the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, California had an aspect of paradise that mm. did not exist elsewhere. I mean, Florida is sort of a second-rate California, but you know it's hot and humid, and the bugs are bigger than people. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I mean it's it's not. I mean, yes, Florida on, and and to some extent Texas, where I do a lot of work, um, are sort of second versions of California in some senses. But no place had the physical and climactic conditions of California, so that added to it. And then it uh, during World War Two, you were mentioning that a you had the tremendous aerospace boom, and of course, very good place. To, test airplanes um, you had the fact that the um, outside of Seattle the big ports were both in, you know San Francisco and LA were here and uh, obviously the Navy was in San Diego and and a really important point was that because California offered something physically different and almost exotic mm-hmm. it attracted all sorts of people um, you know particularly you think about the all the the um, the German uh, and Hungarians who came, you know, there's a, Kevin Starr tells a great story about, um, it, there was a party in Hollywood and uh, Otto Preminger was one of the big producers and he, he found people speaking Hungarian. He said, don't speak Hungarian. This is, this is California, speak German. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, you know, even I'm old enough to remember uh, that old uh, Hollywood and the, the last remnants of that German-Hungarian, mm-hmm. Austria-Hungarian kind of culture that in many ways came here. So many people came here. Aldous Huxley came here. Uh, Thomas Mann came here. Mm. So you don't have that. You don't have those kind of people emigrating to, uh, uh, to Detroit or, or uh, Denver. They, they came to California because California was promised, as Kevin, um, you know, who's unfortunately not with us anymore, uh, you know, what Kevin talked about, there was something special, something magical. You know, when when I moved to California, first I lived in the Bay Area, and you fly in and you look up and you see San Francisco and you see the mm-hmm. Bay, or you fly into L.A. and you see the mountains, particularly this year with the snow, th- there's nothing like it. There's something mm-hmm. so, something special. And then you add the the, the light. I mean, if, and you, if you're European, you know what the climate's like. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it's... <laughs> So you can see why, like David Hockney, mm. yeah, his stuff. Why there are so many British people here, yeah. so many French people here. Um, it was it, there was something materially different than the rest of America. So you talked about this aspect of paradise. Do you think this still holds today? So to bring this forward, sure. a lot, you know, a lot, the, a lot of your work is about the current 
state of California. Well, the, the lovely thing about California, now I'm, again, old enough to remember, everybody you met was from somewhere else, and none of them were going to leave. It was a place where if you were, you know, a, a machinist from Mexico or uh, a, a boat person or a working class guy from the Midwest, you could come to California and you could create this life. And that was what was so great. It was a dream that was not an exclusive dream. The change of the last 20, 30 years, it's become an exclusive dream. To live the California lifestyle today requires enormous amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, even that kind of, av- the idea that the average American could have could have in California, that lifestyle which involved home ownership and a certain upward mobility, at least a realistic possibility of it, even if it you know, wasn't achievable for actually the majority, but I mean, it, it still did, there was still a funnel which, which operated, right? It, w- it was, and, and now you can see it in, in statistics like we now have uh, an average or even below average percentage of people who were born somewhere else. I mean, that was dramatically different. Whereas places like Texas and Florida continue to attract people from other, other places. You know, to some extent, Seattle has some of that as well. Um, so the idea of it being a kind of egalitarian dream has been replaced by a much more, I would argue, feudal dream, where if you don't, if you don't have inherited money, if you don't, if you don't have a, you know, look, if you have a PhD from MIT, you've got a reasonably good chance that you're going to be able to make it in California. But if you have a, a bachelor's degree from, you know, the University of Alabama, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 the nature of that dream has changed. And we now have a group, you know, a group of people in this state who, you know, basically they don't believe in homeownership. They don't believe that people should have backyards. I mean, the whole notion of coming to California, to me, to come to California and live in a, in a dense apartment is like, why? Mm. If I'm going to live that way, I'm going to go live in Paris, I'm yeah. going to live in London, I'm going to live in New York, I'm going to live in Chicago. Mm. Cities that were built that way. Mm. And, you know, you get compensation, you know, like, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, as you can tell from my accent. <laughs> um, you know, Okay, I'm going to live in a small place in New York, but I walk out the door and I'm in New York. Yeah. And I can take the subway and I can take the cab and I can walk to 50 different restaurants. That do, that doesn't exist in, in, in California. Which is, I mean, we notice, I mean, us kind of growing up in, in Europe uh, kind of feel very viscerally almost that you're in LA and yet you're not really sure where exactly you are. And that, I, that for people who haven't grown up with that, it's, a, it's an odd sensation. So, I mean, maybe you could tell us maybe a little bit more in detail about the hardening of class divisions in California uh, sure. and what, what have been the drivers of that? I mean, obviously, you talk about housing specifically as a, as a main factor. Well, one of the, the big drivers is, in a funny way, reflecting the sort of Californian ideology, which is this extreme focus on sort of wellness and quality of life. But it, it turns out that the price of that, the way it's interpreted, so for instance, we're saying, we're not going to build suburbs. We're not going to build on the periphery. We're going to force everybody to live in the inner city where nice to live nicely in the inner city is extraordinarily expensive. Mm. Um, and I think that what's happened is our, our policies, for instance, I'll give you an example. California has an enormous amount of oil. You know, this place is built on oil, okay? 
Uh, it was one of the big drivers of particularly Southern California's emergence um, around the turn of the century. That's Getty, Occidental Petroleum in Bakersfield. There's lots of different examples. We now have a policy where we essentially are trying to kill our energy industry. Now, we're still using oil. We're just getting it from Saudi Arabia now. Of course, maybe they think that's a more progressive regime. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, so fundamentally, we've created an economy where our electricity prices are well above the national average. If you notice, the gas prices are considerably... For us, they're cheap, but yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but they're, but they're go really... To, go to the UK, that's, that's expensive petrol. Yeah, but, you know, the UK is, you know, postage stamp <laughs> compared to... You know, yeah, yeah, no, no, of course, States. of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, of course, a lot of it's relative, you know. Um, so um, we've driven the price of housing. Our price of housing relative to income was about the same as the rest of the country until the 70s. Hmm. And then we started to impose all these sort of, um, well... Basically, I would say almost millenarian ideas of. I don't know if you read the book Ecotopia. Mm, I'm familiar uh, with it. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, and I knew Kallenbach because he was a friend of my uh, of my cousin in Berkeley, um, and you know, it was this this very sort of we're going to live a separate reality from the rest of the country, and so in, instead of becoming sort of an expression of the American dream, in some ways we became. A kind of counter-American dream. It's almost like California has decided to live in opposition to the rest of the country and to have a different model. Now, that model, it works very well if you owned property before 1990. It works very well if you're a, a tech oligarch. It works very well if you're, um, you know, you're, you've got a comfy position in a university or something like that. But for p- people coming in, almost impossible. Um, and the chances of upward mobility are really low. Mm-hmm. Our rate of growth of immigrants is now about a third of what it is in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, you know, people go, don't go to Texas for the weather. They don't go for the topography. Mm-hmm. They go for the opportunity. California used to have opportunity in paradise. Mm-hmm. Now you have to have opportunity in second choices and third choices. I mean, Seattle is beautiful, but it's, of course it's in, you know it's it's wet. Nine months a year, so you know if if you don't want to tempt yourself to commit suicide. So I guess there's a question here around. So you talk talk about the great middle class squeeze. So the people who didn't fit into those categories that you that you talked about, um, only property before 1990, very comfy position or or tech oligarch. How did people who might previously have have had quite high expectations? How did they respond to these to these changes? Well, I think there are a lot of things happened. A, a lot of people left. Okay. We look at who's leaving California. It's not the old folks, it, you know, that which is sort of the image, the old and the stupid. That's what the story is. Actually, what we're finding is it's people in their thirties, particularly people with kids. Hmm. Uh, that's where the big out migration is taking place now. Where where are, where are they going particularly? Um, well, the the. Um, there seem to be different flows. Um, the more working class and more Southern California tends to go to Nevada, mm-hmm. Texas, and Arizona. The more upper class and more Bay Area tend to go to Oregon and Washington and Colorado. Mm-hmm. And, and you know those those p- people can go to either, but um, 
I mean, again, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, I'm fortunate that I came to California in 1971 um, and was able to get into the housing market. But I tell people that I bought my first house in Hollywood for $150,000. They fall off their chairs. You know, I mean, I'm sure that house is worth, you know, 10 times that now. Um, so I think that what we've got is a dream that's becoming increasingly elusive for the vast majority. Yeah. And then there's something particularly disturbing when you're in a place that is so clearly filled with all sorts of, of, of utopian possibilities and you end up with a dystopia. It's quite dis- uh, so difficult. One aspect of, of dystopia or something that could presage a form of dystopia is this idea of cutting off, of becoming separate. And so you, met, you, you mentioned California as this idea of somewhere kind of outside but in a more positive light. And now you have a development of something in a, which I guess you can cast more negatively and you do cast more negatively, which is Silicon Valley and the, what you call kind of this new new oligarchy. We might come on to discuss a little bit more the kind of the feudal metaphor that, that right. you use. Um, I want to ask you actually if it is a metaphor, but we'll come on to that. Yeah. Um, maybe if you could describe the, this development of, of Silicon Valley, because you also mentioned aerospace earlier, the aerospace industry being very important in the 50s. It's a precursor to the development of, of the tech sector right, in, in, in that area of, of California today, but it's quite different in some in many well, ways. The, um, I covered uh, Silicon Valley starting in 1975. Um, it was a very different place. First of all, it was amazingly egalitarian. There were lots of opportunities for people, uh, manufacturing. Uh, there was a lot of, so you had like PC board uh, places. You had places like Intel, Hewlett Packard, which were very good employers, a lot of middle managers. People moved to Silicon Valley because they could buy a single family house you know, where there used to be an apricot orchard. You know, it, was, it was very much more like the San Fernando Valley. It was very similar. And then what's happened in the last 20 years is it moved away from industry more and more towards software. As a friend, my friend Leslie Parks uh, used to be economic development director for San Jose said, you know, we used to make things, then we used to design things to be made, and now we think about them. Hmm. I mean, that. other words, so at every level, the opportunities for anyone but the very super cognitively gifted yeah. have declined. And so you have, you know, tremendous levels of, of, of uh, population that, that has, you know, very marginal uh, existence. You know, you read about people who, live in their vans and, and work at Google. Um, so you, you, you talk about the um, Brave New Valley. Right. So could you maybe, so this idea that you have real splitting into these different oh, yeah. on, well, on um, following Huxley. Uh, can yes. you tell us a little bit about yeah, I'm a this. big Huxley fan. So, um, I mean, basically what you have is you, you have a, a kind of an alpha group mm. at the very top and, you know, the alpha pluses at the very top at the very top. And then there's kind of this group, you know, the betas who are sort of, you know, basically making it, but, you know, but are, you know, living much less well than they would somewhere else. And then there, you go down to this vast population, this vast, you know, underclass of people, um, many of whom have to live 50 to 100 miles away mm. and commute in. Um, and it's, you know, and there doesn't seem to be any way that you break into that. You know, mm. the, the um, uh, you know, first of all, there's no unions. So mm. there's no, there's no way to, 
to uh, increase the wages of people, mm-hmm. um, you know, except in this kind of very doggy dog way. That's where you get this weird combination of sort of utopianism and unbelievable class divides yeah. at the same time. And of course, it, it has a medieval uh, ring to it in the sense that medieval societies were run by theology and California is run by ideology. Except you have this other ingredient of, of this sort of hyper-individualism as well. I mean, that's what you know frames the whole com- the competitive aspect as well, and which maybe even draws from, as we maybe want to come on to talk about a little in a, in a little bit, but uh, from notions of new age or, or even of just of, of cultural liberalism, which, which feed into ideas of, of individualism, which seem very important to contemporary well, California. They are, but there's a really interesting thing that's happened with that individualism, which is um, it's morphed increasingly into orthodoxy mm-hmm. um, and, and become increasingly authoritarian. And California is developing into a very authoritarian place where you, I'll give you, an, you know, like if you want to do things, there are so many things you can't do anymore. Or like, I, I you know, the idea that you would be able to um, uh, uh, have a uh, you know have a house and 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 water your garden they're they're putting taxes on water they're mm-hmm. putting they're putting so many different restrictions on on power and you know as this ecotopian ideology becomes stronger the class divides will become greater because um, you know you think about you know, you get rid of uh, single family homes well what are the gardeners going to do. Um, families can't be here. It's become very family unfriendly as well. You know, San Francisco being the epitome. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm totally on board with this idea. I'm I'm under no illusion that individualism necessarily runs contrary to authoritarianism. I mean, certainly in certain cases, and we've discussed actually many episodes on on this podcast about the ways in which kind of defensive liberal individualism and the market often have recourse to quite authoritarian means. Uh, and maybe we could talk about that already. I don't know if we want to move on to this already, but in in uh, in your book on on class on the new class structure in America, I mean, you you use this medieval metaphor, um, or feudal metaphor, really, uh, where the new clerisy takes an important place, and that's the media industry, academia, the federal government as well. Uh, which I mean, I guess maybe to put a question in a more pointed fashion. Do you see that new clerisy as providing legitimation for the oligarch or the rule of oh, oligarchs? Oh, for sure. I mean, and of course there are going to be interesting contradictions, um, uh, which obviously somebody like me who was trained in Marxism probably would see pretty clearly, even though I'm, I'm certainly not a Marxist. But, but, but for instance, if you, if, if, you, if you see the emphasis on certain kinds of issues, environment, gender, you know, gay rights, um, you know, of course, the now the transgender business, um, the notion of, you know, feminism, all those ideologies, if the the oligarchs are perfectly happy with that agenda, yeah. yeah, what they don't want to deal with is the class and income inequality. That's where they have a, have a big problem. And, you know, I don't know how they're going to be able to to deal with that, um, you know, for instance, you have them wanting to basically wipe out single-family homes and putting in, you know, all these places. Well, where are the, where's their workforce going to come from? Where, you know, thirty-somethings with kids don't want to live in little apartments. Um, how are they going to deal with the issue of 
it's really interesting, the contradiction between their worldview and the economic reality that people live. Mm -hmm. I mean, are they making life better? Is life better in Silicon Valley than it was 20 years ago? I think most people who grew Mm -hmm. up there would not agree that it is. And particularly young people, because if you're an old person, you bought your home, at least you made a fortune on your home. Hmm. So it's millennials getting really squeezed out. Right. Um, and I, so if, if this is one side of it, the nuclearity and the legitimation, what are the... Um, so you write, in, in a way not seen since the land consolidation of the Middle Ages when lords established military control, or perhaps since the early days of the Industrial Revolution, the shift to a digital economy has created an enormous accumulation of wealth. So this yeah. is obviously the other side yes. of, this, of this feudal... Um, or this, when you talk about feudalism, so could you maybe sure. tell us a bit, a bit about how how has this happened and what's been the, what's been the role of the state perhaps, well, in this? Well, I mean, I think that you know the state um, initially obviously was a great uh, driver of of uh, upward mobility. You know, the, mm. from the freeway systems, the water systems, the power systems, the university systems, the, the, all the various uh, state colleges um, over the years. Um, the state has not invested in that physical infrastructure and has allowed the California education system for, to deteriorate enormously. Mm. So whereas, let's say, the, the, the person who moved to California from New Jersey in 1970 was able to go into a good school system, now they're, in many cases, unless they have a lot of money, they're going to a crappy school system that is not very w- well run and uh, doesn't show any particular uh, uh, movement to getting any better. Um, You look at the University of California. Um, University of California was built as a school for Californians. Now a huge percentage of the students are from overseas, you know, paying full freight. And, uh, you know, the school feels less and less like a a school of of California. Um, And and so that, that linkage between the state and its middle class and working class has just deteriorated over time. We've chased businesses out of the state. We have the uh, energy prices, the housing prices. And so what you've got is you've got a, a, a small group of people who have done extraordinarily well, mm-hmm. and most everybody else has done worse. Yeah, I mean, I think all the all the contradictions of financialization, which is yeah, across exactly. the globe, are played out in very stark form in yeah. California. I mean, you can almost have a little microcosm of, of the world, or maybe the West, I guess, rather than the whole world uh, in California. So, I mean, the, you talk also about the kind of the degree, what is about twenty five percent poverty rate, and particularly the Central Valley, which is particularly some very poor areas of the country. Well, if you take a look at the United Way study, which I thought was the best one, it's called uh, the Real Measure. And they looked at, and basically about 30% of the population is a paycheck away from, from mm-hmm. being pretty destitute. Um, we have very high levels of debt. Even the middle class has a very high level, because of, of, if nothing else, just housing. And then we have a very high tax regime. California, for many years, had kind of a middling tax regime. Now we have one of the highest tax regimes. And that's very difficult. If you're a young family and you know, you're spending... You know, you know, you have a tax just from the state of 10 to 12 percent, hmm. you know, and you add that to the federal, you're at about 50. But I mean, is the argument to... that then that falls too heavily on the middle class or kind of average incomes rather than on higher incomes? Yes. Earners. And of course, it's on the higher incomes. And then 
a lot of things are fun, financed by sales taxes, which right, are which is regressive. Yeah, but completely regressive. You know, if you have a tax on water, or probably the best example is the energy prices as a result of, you know, sort of the messianic uh, uh, green policies of California. Energy is incredibly expensive. Well, you know, frankly, I I use a tank of gas a, a month. Okay, I ride my bike to school. My favorite days, I don't even I I, I you don't even start the car. And I live eight minute drive from from the school. If I'm a working class guy in Riverside who has to drive a truck because he's a construction worker, he's taking an F one fifty from Riverside to Long Beach every day. That price makes a big difference mm. for me. Maybe it's you know sushi less you know one one less sushi meal during the month. <laughs> For that, for that person, it could be a, a game changer. We did a study. This was really interesting. Here at Chapman, we, we published a study in which we looked at would a union construction worker be able to buy a medium price house in coastal California? Not one. Not one could buy it. It sounds like a bit of an updated version of uh, nickel and dimed. Barbara Aaron Reich study like what what can you what can you achieve given the the, the sort of pay but regime? the difference is she was dealing with the very low end yeah. service workers you're is, talking about skilled yeah. trades yeah. in the union making you know yeah. really good salaries and who in, in most of the country would be very solid middle class people and have historically in California been solid middle class people now they're forced to live fifty to hundred miles away. Yeah. We'll be back for more with Joel Kotkin in just a bit. But first, let's turn to what was distinctive about Californian development, and especially the urban environment of LA, and also discuss the possibilities and limitations of Silicon Valley-driven tech solutions. We met up with a friend of the podcast, Tim Abrahams, in a bar in an open-air mall in Irvine, California, as you do. Tim is a writer on architecture and urbanism for The Economist and Architectural Record, and is a contributing editor to design magazine Icon. He was visiting California at the same time we were on a Winston Churchill Memorial Travel Grant to study contemporary and post-war suburban housing. So here's us talking to Tim over some beers. There's a book called The Four, Four Ecologies of Los Angeles, written by a British writer called Rainer Bannon in the 1960s, which is this kind of... It's important from... Los Angeles perspective because cool, it's crayon there if anybody wants it. Thanks, man. Thanks. I'm more of a blue crayon kind of guy. Um, it, it, it's written by a kind of architecture critic, but also someone who's writing about a city. And for the first time, someone says, Los what Los Angeles is, is future. It's incredibly important. It confounds every single thing kind of planning theory that's been produced by left-wing intellectuals since the beginning of modernism to now. It's, everyone rejects it. So how, do, how does it run against left-wing theory about urbanism up till then? Uh, density is key. Density is key. Public transit is key. And this just blows this out of the water. It, no, it LA doesn't blow it out of water because it, what it does is it's a kind of slow elegy to the place. It's not, uh, 
it's not a kind of like you guys have done it all fucking wrong. It just it's a kind of it, it breaks Los Angeles down into four zones: the the seaside towns, the kind of elitist hilltops, and the it calls it the plains of it, which are basically the it's the flatlands in which we are a kind of now uh, an external element of an it, like the like Freudian id. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, of, of a kind of, uh, and he kind of, and then also fourth is we call it Autopia, which is the driving mm-hmm. experience. And the plays of it is really interesting because he understands, he, and he, he basically explains that the great kind of idea about Los Angeles is that you can do what you want when you, you know, there's yeah. a. That that's what what's the logic to it? Well, the logic is to it. Get your car and you go where the fuck you want to. Um, and he kind of. But that reaches. But that reaches like its end now. I mean, if you're stuck in traffic, just take the example of mobility, right? Yeah. If you're stuck in traffic, it, it, that kind of freedom isn't there, really, right? I mean, you're... I think. Well, one, I think it's a small. It's a price to pay. Okay. You know. You really, the traffic is bad. It's the thing that binds Los Angeles in many ways, complaining about the traffic. Actually, the traffic is, yeah, it's worse than it was. But, but I, you speak to a few, I spoke to quite a few people here, and they're saying, well, the problem, the problem was what's happening in Los Angeles, and it relates to the earlier point about them introducing this Brooklynization. They're both, they changed the planning system to encourage employment within different hubs like Culver City's become a kind of tech center it's where Amazon Studios are it's the kind of combination between the tech and the film industry so you have these new centers where employment exists in one of these kind of oh, you got random what do you guys think? Wow, really good yeah great wow. actually Los Angeles is becoming less mobile people are staying in their in their little areas much more right. than they did in the 60s and 70s where it was a, like a kind of I live here but I work there whereas now it's like I live and work here and uh, you know you hear people saying it's like it's ruining Los Angeles you know this kind of co- constant I mean right. the traffic and the traffic is part of that but you know the, the population of Los Angeles is pretty static it's not like it's kind of booming it's like areas out here where they are yeah, they're building a fair bit, but like, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, they're not. These people aren't working in Los Angeles. These people aren't, you know. Yeah. They are. They're working in. Well, oh, Catherine would say there's a fair bit of commute, commuting though, like people who live in Orange County and, and yeah, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is, but it's polycentric. It's not yeah. from here to the centre. Yeah. It's yeah. like people here might be going to I don't know yeah. to Hollywood. Uh, some might be going to East Los Angeles. Some might be going to downtown. Very few will be going downtown. So you have a kind of. But then yeah. you have this kind of contraction of the possibility. There are huge things that need to happen with the transit here. And that is what's the interesting thing, the exciting thing of, 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 of the new technology. You know, not the, yeah, if you're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, you read, you actually read in the four ecologies of Los Angeles, Raina Bannum saying, you know, what the, what you have to do is when you're driving is just become man machine. You just become a takeover and you become machine. And he says it's very easy to think now. This is in '64. Very, it's very easy to imagine the time when these things will become actually robotic and we'll be sitting in them and they'll be traveling. Yeah. And this is the point. This is this will be Los Angeles in ten years. It's now happening. It's going to happen. 
whether it happens in a way which aids public transit or whether it's a way that aids the dot-com companies is the interesting thing. Because it's quite striking, you have these, uh, I think with the I-401, right? <clears throat> and multi-lane the highway, but actually so much time lost by people just changing lanes in a very inefficient, irrational way. Because it's actually quite a, it's quite yeah. a potentially massive arterial road. And uh, yeah, and, and automatic, automated cars would then be able to would have, yeah, would reduce that. Well, it's because well, there's a, an element of collective intelligence, so the cars know where they're. But you know. yeah, there's and there's a, I mean, it looks as if kind of high-level autonomy. They have a there's a kind of I think it's created by Stanford or or was it MIT a kind of five levels of autonomy, and the okay. idea of the fifth level of autonomy is just like sit there and fucking does everything, you know. And the idea at number three is that it's kind of taking hold of certain functions. And you kind of think, well, how do you progress up this chart of, uh, of autonomy? And, and actually, a lot of people say, well, number five is probably never going to happen. And the shift at the moment is to to concentrating less on the vehicle, but on the systems which govern the vehicle. So you have... 5G. One of the reasons why 5G mobile phone technology is important is because it's about cars, like cars being able to talk to infrastructure. So uh, infrastructure, so that there can be a system of signaling which says in this area you will go 50 miles an hour, and you will go 50 miles an hour because we're in charge of your fucking car. You know. So right. there's uh, that is there's a kind of left turn, and you know. San Francisco's up there. These companies are up there, and the big problem, the big, the big test case is, is Los Angeles. And Beverly, the, the mayor of Beverly Hills was saying, "I want to put it out to anyone who wants to listen to any dot in any AV company, come to Beverly Hills and let's do something. Let's do something with public transit. Let's do something about it. And whether they come to do something about public transit or whether they come to do something about." Uh, about how, how Waymo can, can be in charge of the traffic system and they still keep selling cars is a, you know, they're incredibly skeptical. Anyone in a public public position here is, you know, I said to them, isn't it interesting that, that, that it's the dot-com companies who are kind of trying to fall, solve problems of sub-suburban yeah. development? And um, they said, these guys don't give a shit. The guys don't care at all. They're just trying to make money. They're, you know, you have people talking very positively about the idea of autonomous vehicles, but what you then, you know, and you go, well, you know, that's great because they're coming up with this stuff, and you can have a yeah. chat, and they're like, these guys are out to make as much money from us as possible. These guys, the reason why Waymo, you know, someone who, someone, I spoke to a guy called Matthew Coolidge at the Center for Land Use Interpretation. He's very positive about the idea of autonomous vehicles, but then. And then you're going to go, oh, like, great, you can talk to these guys that are making that. And he was like, those guys are assholes. <laughs> those guys are, you know, they're, they're, and there's a definite sense that there's a, a big struggle between... An antagonistic yeah, relationship. Between, between, and, and yeah. what is surprising here, what, you kind of think because you've got this utterly diffused urban settlements and you have these very distinct mayoral bodies that they're actually going to be quite weak. These guys are kind of, like the mayor of Beverly Hills was like pretty strongly... I'm a communitarian, communitarian, communitarian is, but he's like... Blue Labour. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. But he was like, we want to make, these guys have it, we want to make it work for our city. Yeah. Let's talk about it, but it has to be for us. Yeah. And 
that makes you, you know, the, the, the thing that's interesting from a, a kind of tech bat, from a high tech point, from these tech people point of view, is that they're like, oh shit, it's not happening now. It's going to take ten years before anything happens. And like, that's a lifetime in tech, you know. That's right. Like, how many different iPhones will happen in those? But I mean, years? they're going to make that profit, right? I mean, it, it seems that there's such laxity from regulatory authorities, from cities, from municipalities, with regard to any sort of tech incursion into the areas of transport and mobility that like you could regulate them and make it work for us as the, the yeah. mayor of what's this, of, yeah. of Beverly Hills yeah, put John it Bear. and they'd still, they'd still be making money they're just not going to be making money hand over fist and kind of um, I don't think so I no? think the, the, there is a gap between what the urban possibilities there's a there's a gap that exists between the technical potential of what autonomous vehicles can do say in a in a kind of random lot university campuses is where the shuttles are being tried out because you know it can move it's got a closed loop it can move around it moves at slow speeds there's a huge gap between that and the city-wide being in a real world and actually there's a gap of expertise between translating that to that and that expertise is about it's about transport planning it's about it's not about a technical solution which is what the dot com has come up with and that requires an extreme level of negotiation because there's a huge lot of ideological fix and focus within that planning scenario i.e some people are just like you're just cars we don't want you you're just you're just a fancy car and we're against cars Uh, or it's a case of we represent our democratically elected officials and we want to make this work for the widest number of possible people or it might be how much money can you give me i don't give a shit let's get going i guess it's hardly surprising that the tech approach is solutionist like Let's just solve this as a purely technical problem without any social, yeah. political, political, social engagement. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think it is interesting. That's true. That's very true. But there is a sense that these guys built, grew out, grew out the suburbs in, grew out the suburbs of San Francisco, Palo Alto, yeah. Mountain View. These are suburban areas. Yeah. They created employment dense employment areas which created problem of car transport they looked out the windows of their offices and saw huge queues to get into their car park and what they did was try to come up with a technical solution to that and there's an absolute fundamental i it's a kind this is the key thing i keep saying to people here and they're like shut the fuck up they don't care they just want their money yeah okay that may be true but the technical fix is about dealing with congestion and there is a logic to that and that logic will ultimately, I think, have a beneficial effect on being able to provide public trans- transit here and from here in other cities around the world. There's a great book about Los Angeles called Holy Land by a guy called DJ Waldy who who was the who was the head of a plant? Who was the head of a? Uh, it was the, the, the communications guy for a, a local city called Lakewood, which was built in the 1950s, and it was built a, a, a suburban development built by three Jewish land developers. Like with everything around here, it's like you say a name, and it's like I know a film about that. Yeah, <laughs> I can't yeah, I can't yeah. place it, but yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and it's and it's a it's a it's a really sharp. I mean, as in every suburban development, there's a utopian story to it, with which has to be questioned about racial politics because all of them had, you know, written into their into the deeds of it you couldn't, couldn't sell your place to a black person right you know, that happened it, it was challenged in the law course by 48 but it was still widespread developed and it's late and so like it can use like in informal ways rather than in, you know like well individuated you yeah. know like rather than having a kind of city yeah, yeah, but, but like, the black, black people, the people yeah yeah, like, yeah you you have to take you have to take personal response moral responsibility for not selling your house to a black person right no no exactly it's it's, it's an informal social yeah, pressure yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, it kind of killed them. There's huge, really fascinating moments of utopian house sharing, not house sharing, house, housing association initiatives that come into California in the ni- late 1940s and they're all killed basically by this legislation which it's challenged in 48 and it's proved to be illegal but by that point it's become so insidious McCarthyism comes in as well so you have this kind of these socially progressive movements to, to collective housing and to mutual housing associations are pretty much killed by, 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 by this legislation McCarthyism by the mid 50s and you have instead things like Lakewood, which is a very positive working-class housing, they're all working in the uh, aviation. You know, they're all working for, for like the defence industry, building right. airplanes. Mm. Uh, but there's huge amounts of works in a kind of corridor that goes from Long Beach all the way all the way inland. And you know, you go there, and it's really it's really interesting that this guy DJ Waldy is a he's written a history of the place, but he can't drive. He's, his, his eyesight is so bad and he gets transit he has to get transit everywhere how does he uh, DJ then? <laughs> like a lot of DJs he's like just on the bottom of the playlist yeah, yeah he is the most DJ Waldy yeah. DJ Waldy represent Waldy <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's he's the most un-DJ DJ ever. really? Okay. yeah just a yeah. this conservative uh, no but not a kind of like that blue labour kind of Joe Cockin position of like we, yeah we, we've been thinking a little bit about this like culturally conservative radical critics how there are a lot of interesting voices not particularly of, of California because it has a it does have a particular place in like world culture well, so it's the, a, and it's a leading one no, so, so, so the thing about those voices are lost on the international stage. So, I mean, if, yeah. if I'm saying like conservative, radical, politically radical, but culturally conservative critics. So, I'm thinking obviously like people like Christopher Lash, thinking of Daniel Bell, thinking of um, thinking of Alistair McIntyre, you know, who like goes between Catholicism and, and, and Marxism. Um, There's obviously all the communitarians. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm very sympathetic to them. Like, even, even when I disagree, I'm like, yeah, but that's quite interesting. Like, I need to take that on board. Like Daniel Bell, like cultural contradictions of capitalism. Like right at the outset, he defines himself as a, a as an economic socialist, a political liberal, and a cultural conservative, right? And it's interesting because, like, just to, to, just to not talk about those intellectuals, but what is socially majoritarian in Britain today, or indeed in Brazil, or indeed in the United States, right? Most likely, I would I would like hypothesize that majoritarian is. Or at least a plur- like it, this is a plurality of the population would fall into this, if not an outright majority 
is in favor of social democratic policies in terms of a decent welfare state, which makes sure that no one falls through the cracks. It's a, 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 a solid and relatively high welfare net. More important than that even, high wages, um, a degree of public services and investment in infrastructure, which takes society forward and builds a new world. And, you know, just, just that basic kind of modernist attitude towards the built environment, which would be progressive and in favor of state action to do that. If only the state would do that. In fact, probably that's most people's complaint. If only the state would do that, you know, like if only the state would actually fucking build stuff instead of, you know, being corrupt and pocketing the money or whatever. That and would be culturally conservative in the sense of, I'm fine with gay people, but I'm not in favor of um, the the weakening of the bounds of gender, right? So I'm not in favor of everyone being trans and blah 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 blah. But I'm, I'm, I'm tolerant of, of different expressions of, yeah. of pe people can live their lives however the fuck they want, but I don't want it in my face. You know, that kind of expression, agree with it or not, that tends to be, I mean, and, and also just a general resistance to any of the radical liberal, culturally elite ideas of how one should live one's life and the idea that culture even, like cultural products, cinema or whatever, should all be about positive messaging around liberal ideals, right? People hate that shit, right? Yeah. And that's probably more or less culturally majoritarian, uh, whatever, politically majoritarian in most places. And it has no political representation because what has political representation? You either have liberalism, cultural liberalism and economic liberalism, which you reject, um, or you have a kind of, or you have socialists maybe, but who are also cult like, culturally liberal I guess um, or culturally progressive or you have or you have proper conservatives but who who because they need their elite backers defend economic liberalism and the power of established economic interests so actually there's very few people speaking up for that I'm not like necessarily advocating that favor like I'm not blue labor I'm not like I, I don't I, I find that too culturally conservative it's often too nationalist and whatever but it is a majority which does not have actual expression. Yeah. And and where does that have expression? It has expression through populists. So, you know, when Marine Le Pen, just to give an example, it says, we, you know, we defend the welfare state when the left actually doesn't do a good job of it, but we're also, we don't like Islamists and whatever. That speaks to people. And I think, that, you know, the problem is that it has to really be combated because I don't think people are, like, happy necessarily with her racism. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the point is, is that because no one else is speaking for that kind of idea that you want to defend social democracy, but the left is unable to do that, or the left prioritizes its cultural struggle over social democracy, that it's like, well, fucking no one's speaking for us. And I think that that's... Well, the, I mean, to bring it back to here, the weird thing is that in, in this part of the world, you do have advocates for that in city government. That's interesting. The city governments, I mean, it seems insane that someone says, uh, Lakewood is a city. Culver City is a city. You're like, you literally have your own police force. Right. What the fuck. You're like, you're like, I can walk across you. Not that I would, because I'm in California. And <laughs> I could walk across you. You're nothing. <laughs> I would. I, I'd probably get run over because. Right. So I would honk at you like a homeless person because you walk, where's your car, you, you loser in life, yeah. you know? But what, so, I guess, what, what's the comparison? Because my understanding in the, in the UK is that to become a city, you have to fulfill various conditions. And There's the no comparison. 
So the reason the reason that I know this is because Reading uh, yeah, yeah. has applied twice to become a city and has failed both times because because it's, okay, there's this nothing is, there's nothing there's no reason to make this, it. This, a this city is how Lakewood became a city. Do you want to know how Lakewood became? Okay. 1948, three Jewish guys bought a massive tract of farmland thirty miles from Los Angeles. Uh, kind of played the the new the new uh, kind of GI bill for rehab, you know, okay. ho real homes for heroes kind of right. moment where California becomes an actual the, the, the state that it is today. Everything goes back to 1947 in California. Uh, Literally, okay. it's kind of not, you know, you have these kind of, you know, there's probably some kind of early 20th century historian of California going, no, lots of really interesting things happened in California. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, div I, it's a dividends of, of like the post-war period, of, like, you know, yeah. You know, we all, you know, if you if we all kind of like in the UK look back to 47 as an epochal moment, it's nothing compared to California. It right. literally, you know, you have a whole switch of focus with the theatre of war towards the Pacific taking place, building up of kind of huge military military installations up and down the West Coast. So, so it's, it's the, a, the the golden years of like 45 to 73 make the golden state. Yeah, man, the manifest destiny actually... I like actually, that, good. Uh, yeah, very good. Manifest destiny actually happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, there's this kind of like... But a century later, but yeah. yeah. You know, it, this idea that it was all going to happen and... and, and you know, it finally, it finally happens, and it happens through an act of massive, one of the most huge military conflagrations that history's ever fucking known. It's an incredibly traumatic experience, but it creates this kind of this huge employment of defence. Which is the story, which is the story of the United States as a whole like after the Second World War. I mean, yeah. the Second World War is. Very, both world wars are very, very good for the United States. You know, its its involvement is relatively no limited. One, no, no and one had it, a better war know. than California. We were then interrupted by our server, who proceeded to give us an impromptu sociological overview of the Golden State, which actually proved kind of useful. Food was enough. You guys want any other thing to snack on? I'm super hungry. I could. No, you know what? We, we might. We might just leave it yeah, yeah, for this okay. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No Otherwise, it's snooze time by three. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know. It's on just... your way back up to LA, you might. <laughs> yeah, when are you, you going to come up with these down. autonomous vehicles so we can do that? Oh, no, you, you guys working on it? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a little farther north, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, I they can come and test it out here. Yeah? The, you you drive around here, you see plenty of Tesla. You see plenty of people who have those out here. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah, so all the all, a lot of the wealth is here in Silicon Valley. It's very interesting. Like here, because because California is mostly like a, a blue state, with a lot of that kind of uh, uh, population. But it, the red part is very much concentrated here in Orange County and up north in like Silicon Valley. Yeah. Like a lot of the business and the wealth. Reds, red, which color? I, uh, is like Republican. Reds, yeah, Republicans, the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they two different sorts of Republicans? So I'd imagine this is more of the old money, socially conservative. Uh, a little bit, Silicon yeah. Valley is more it, of a libertarian. There is, but uh, a lot of the, a lot of like the, uh, the wealth up there is also some older wealth of people okay. who just they they put their money into startup companies mm -hmm. and they don't really. That's why you see a whole bunch of startup companies that come and go because they just they have so much they just throw it in there like okay they're, they're i'm gonna kind of yeah based. i'm gonna diversify in all these like startups and then so some of them went sink some and some of them float and, 
the, the, the kind of VC venture capital. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. The capital yeah. sort of there. Yeah. yeah. I was following like a Twitter. I don't know if it's a Twitter or Facebook kind of thread. It was someone's like, if you had to visit one U.S. state, which would give you the best impression of the whole country, hmm. what would it be? And like, you know, people have come out with all sorts of shouts, whatever about. Actually, for actually Pennsylvania, whatever. Mm. Actually, Pennsylvania was quite a frequent occurrence because they could say, well, you know, you got Philadelphia, yeah, like which is like which is yeah. like New York, but then you have like Pittsburgh, which is Rust Belt, and whatever. Mm. And then you got some countryside in the middle, and you got whatever. Mm. But actually, lots of people were saying California because despite California's it's huge like particular yeah, 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 particularities, yeah. like you've got the Central Bar, yeah. you've got like it a kind of very big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. There's a lot of population. We're politics-wise, like on this last uh, this last ballot of our elections last year. We, I mean, this, this has been happening for a long time, but trying people are trying to vote to split up the state into two states and to actually like northern and southern yeah. California. Oh really? Yeah. Because you could split it east-west as well. Because I mean, the interior part is quite more oh, conservative, people, right? Like yeah, people. The chili of the north. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people have been. Yeah, uh, fucking chili could be split up. Man. It, like, that's too long. People hate it. Like people hate it, or they're like for it. It's, yeah. But we wow. voted this this year to like uh, to vote to get rid of daylight savings time and to like to like have have like control over it to like move it wherever we want. And it's like some people who are like, okay, well, if we change it, like our kids in LA are gonna be like walking home in the dark or like going to school in the morning in the dark, like not very safe conditions, you know. So, so then, like, so so you now have the. Do you want rush hour is gonna be no no because then rush hour is gonna be even worse. But people are already terrible fucking drivers. Like <laughs> the traffic is absolutely trash. It's garbage. And the politics of daylight savings time. It's spicy. Like it's an actual spicy topic. It's, it's a people very get weird really angry about this shit. Are, it really is. I live in Brazil and be, like they've just decided to get rid of. Like summertime. Uh-huh. No, no, get rid of summertime. Yeah, summer's still gonna happen. Summer's still gonna happen. But they've got rid of like the time, like daylight savings time for summertime, whatever yeah. it's called. And people are like fucking outraged by this because it means that like the sun's gonna set. Or instead of having, you know, long, long summer evenings, you're gonna like the sun's gonna finish, you know, at seven in the evening, and people get really pissed off about this. Yeah. But I don't know if there's a political positioning on this, or if it's just like <laughs> your own know. personal I think it's preference. Just like, yeah, I don't know if there's politically, if there's like a motivation behind it. It's just so, but for the vote was on whether you controlled it. Yeah, whether we whether we basically uh, like whether it was up to the our Congress to decide when when it was. So basically. so so did the vote? Did they win the vote to control when it was? Uh. Yes and no. Like it's still, it's still kind of being processed because even even if it fully goes through, then then it's still going to take time for yeah, 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 them to like yeah, yeah, yeah. vote on it in Congress. So it's still like up, so a lot of the, still kind of debating about a lot of the relationship between the kind of state Congress and the federal government is like who gets to control what rather than what they actually control. yeah that that's something that like the state government could control. But even within the state government, then all of our represent everybody, they also have to be like. Okay, now we have to figure out when we want to move it to, if we even want to move it. It's like, like we want the principle of being able to choose. Yes, yeah. Oh God, by district, like to choose. That would be terrible. That's good. Democratic be control of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Of what time is it? They just like fuck it. We're, we're yeah, on we're Hawaii time. time. Fuck zone. you guys. California time zone. That would be absolute garbage. Uh, I vote for it to be an hour ago. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whenever yeah, yeah. I get to work, that is position. when I'm on time. That's when it starts. Yeah. <laughs> The question of suburbs is inextricable from the model of California development. Traditionally seen by progressive critics as sites of conformity and quiescence, some now argue that this relationship has almost flipped around, 
Suburbs are diverse and even possibly sites of rebellion, while it's the inner cities that have become homogenous and even exclusionary. Back to Joel Kotkin. The idea that the suburbs, and by the way, it's not just true here, are these sort of boring places. Actually, what's un- what's weird is the inner city has become boring. Right, that absolutely. I mean, now I think you could maybe maintain an argument 20 years ago for right. saying the inner city was interesting, it was diverse, and the suburbs were, were boring. And you say, well, even if you don't buy the argument that the suburbs are boring, now you can at least... I mean, you can definitely say that the inner city has become increasingly... I mean, as, as an old New Yorker, you know, I, early memories of, of walking with my grandmother, and she would walk through Greenwich Village and say, oh, yeah, the, the, um, the Gershwins lived in this building, and I got arrested at a Margaret Sanger rally at this corner, and if you were Jewish and you were on the Ukrainian block, you got crap kicked out of you. I mean, in other words... There was, the, and, and I can still remember, or take San Francisco, there were still ethnic neighborhoods in San Francisco. Yeah. There's nothing. It, 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 it's poor people, hipsters, and rich people. So maybe talk about, George, I think wanted to ask about, you know, the built environment and, and places of, of rebellion. Maybe. Yeah, so <clears throat> suburbs, more diverse, um, less atomized than are often in a crude way constructed. But what do you think of the possibilities for suburban rebellion? I guess, because we've seen, obviously, the Gilets jaunes in... Great in, question. We, do, is, is this coming to California anytime soon? Well, you know, we're publishing a new geography of peace uh, precisely on the British election, mm-hmm. uh, where we, we think that a lot of, of the changes, you know, the Brexit party is probably going to win the election, mm. um, you know, will be the largest player. And I think of this, the Gilets jaunes, you know, which is um, uh, portrayed as... A bunch of you know rustic you know people like us uh, you know sort of like the you know like the you know people in the Gironde during yeah the, they buff as they're as they're derogatorily referred to right. as in France yeah but actually it's predominantly the suburbanites and I am hoping that the suburbs will rebel I mean they you know at what point will people who spent their life to buy a house and all of a sudden the state says oh by the way they can build a fourplex next to you and you know, you you have to pay half your income in taxes, and you have to you know you can't have a pool, or you can't you can't use a gas generator, even though the power keeps going out. Um, I'm hoping that there'll be a rebellion. The problem is is a communications issue. I think in a large, the suburbs have no voice. The media is controlled completely from from the inner city, mostly from controlled by the oligarchs. Um, uh, there's no voice for the middle class. I mean, it's really interesting. All the big newspapers support densification, and the city councils are all against it because the city council person has to run for office. Mm-hmm. And if you live in the San Fernando Valley and they say, well, we're going to double the density, you'll say, why? I don't want this. And, of course, the great irony is it's happening at a time when California um, is not growing in population, and L.A. actually lost population last year. Mm. Um and and so I think that 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 it's the the, the, the and I, this is a national issue. Suburbs have no voice. There's nobody speaking for them. You know, the rural areas have their voice, and the cities, you know, the inner cities have their voice. And even the the neighborhoods inside the cities have very little power. What would you then you class the suburbs? I mean, what? I don't want to say that you should ventriloquize the suburbs, but what would you say that the suburbs' voice should be, or what do you what would what do you see as the suburbs' interest? I mean, as as a as a 
maybe not as a class because the suburbs isn't really a class, but as a place, I mean, what is its interest? Yeah. Well, first of all, you got to look at, okay, what are the things that, that are important um, in terms of middle-class families? I mean, housing prices, price of energy, price of water, um, the the assurance that if I move into a something that's a single-family neighborhood, that it's going to pretty much stay that way. Now, there may be some density on the major streets, and that, you know, and, and I think people should have to accommodate that, but but you you simply um, uh, you simply have to say what does it mean for me? What does it mean for the day to day life of a person who who is is middle class? Quality of the schools is a huge issue. To me, you know, you mentioned conservative, uh, you know, and I've been, you know, believe me, if I would identify myself as a conservative, my life would have been much easier than it turned out to be. Uh, <laughs> But I'm not. I'm an old social democrat. And I feel yeah. that social democrats yeah. should be in favor of good public schools and we should be in favor of, of upward mobility and a diverse economy. That you know, one of the great tragedies that's taken place in, under this current regime is a let's say you're a, a business in Orange County or LA County or San Francisco, and it's just too expensive for you to be there. Historically, you moved into the suburbs, you moved further east, you moved to the Central Valley, you moved to Livermore, you moved to Riverside, you moved to Yorba Linda, whatever it is, you moved out. Now that's almost impossible. And what economic development people tell me is they just say, I'm not going to deal with the crazies in Sacramento. I'm, I'm, if I've got to expand, I'm going to expand in Nevada. I'm going to expand in... Mm-hmm. in so the California dream, in a way, is being exported to other states. Mm-hmm. Now, they can't recreate the climate, they can't recreate the topography, but they can recreate something of the life that Californians enjoyed en masse at one point. Um, and look, why would anyone move to Dallas from California if they didn't have to? <laughs> try by on Dallas. Um... Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe to try to round this out and, and pin some of the elements that we've spoken about to some bigger ideas are kind of at a level of abstraction, I guess. Um, do Does this middle class squeeze the kind of, perhaps the specter even of uselessness? I mean, the idea that many new industries just aren't mopping up unemployment in the way that they used to, or that their expansion doesn't bring in new employment. Uh, the role of, yeah, what you call the new clerisy, I mean, the, sort of the ideological functions played by the media, the academia, uh, to a certain extent, the government. Is, is, is this the end of, of Americanism or the, the American dream of California? And, and then I guess as a, as a follow-on to that, what would you see as a, you know, if you describe yourself as an old social democrat, a collective political response to that? Well, I mean, I think that, that first of all, the good thing is uh, California is not, does not prevent the American dream from taking place, at least it hasn't yet, you know, if... Uh, if if we end up with a government that follows California's uh, model, then that we may see that. Um, but I think that 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 the, the 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 real issue is fundamentally the people who run the state don't give a damn what happens to the middle class. They really they'll talk about it, but they really don't give a damn. They don't understand that the average middle class family wants a single family house with a backyard. That's what they want. Every poll, every survey. Every 80% of what they buy, that's what they want. If you've got a government that now thinks it knows better. It's a kind of, you know, sort of, the, this is what the clerisy is all about. We know better. You know, you, 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 know, you, have, to, you, know, you have to sacrifice to save the planet. Well, meanwhile, 
you know, I'm going to take my private jet. I was at a, it was a perfect little story. I um, was speaking at a Wall Street Journal conference uh, on the environment. And, you know, it was in Santa Barbara. And I asked the, the, the organizer, I said, well, where are all these people from? Oh, they're from Silicon Valley. And how did they get here? They took their private jets. But they're going to tell everybody else, well, you know what? You can't drive that F-150. That's bad for the planet. How about your goddamn yeah. private jet? Well, and, and I guess another angle to this as well in terms of we know best is something that we've been spent the past kind of couple of days discussing, which is kind of notions of wellness where the cultural and political and economic elite are very focused on their own wellness, which is a, a, a level of health beyond health, right? right. Um, which brings in all sorts of quasi-spiritual notions of well, wellness. Very, but, but of course, there's no just basic health care isn't available for the majority. So. And a very strong moral critique as well. And I yeah, think it's right. the same with environmentalism. Right. Oh, well, you don't care about the planet. You're a bad person. You can't take care of yourself and have good physical How, how dare you eat a hamburger? Yeah. Right. And, and of course, what's really funny about it is the, these same people who are, are, who are imposing these things, many of them obviously indulge themselves in ways that not, uh, we can't even imagine. Um... And also that a lot that um, they uh, they have no sense of even what the impact is. What's funny about California is we've had all these crazy regulations, and our reduction of GHG is fortieth out of the uh, out of the uh, fifty states. In other words, because many of the things that they're actually proposing make things worse. Because they say, well, we're going to have high density, and we're not going to fix the roads. We'll get what. It, Guess what you get? You get unbelievable congestion and terrible pollution from the congestion. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there seems to it, it, it. seems that in the last few years we've taken social justice out as an economic factor and made it into a lifestyle yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a lawsuit. Um, are you going up to San Francisco? We're not. Oh, okay. Um, my friend Jennifer Hernandez has a lawsuit. You know, with with 200 civil rights leaders in California saying how California's climate policies are discriminatory against minorities and the poor. And I can get you the link to, to that. Um, cannot get any reporting. People who, if they were complaining about race, they'd be on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle. They can't get arrested because the holy grail is anything that the climate lobby says has got to be right. Yeah, and of course, climate lobby is increasingly not about fixing anything or making life better. It's a, it's about you know, it's we call virtue signaling. Yeah, you know, it's about oh how noble like Apple. And, Apple. and without pop, without a popular buy-in, actually, the ideas necessary and the, the sort of programs and transformations of the economy necessary to actually perhaps deal with you know to decarbonize the economy in the future and so on uh, won't be pop won't be possible because they're. Many of those ideas seem to be premised on behavior management and uh, basically yeah, telling people what to do. And people generally take, uh, <laughs> take exception to that. Well, and I think that's, you know, and, and also when your program means my quality of life is going to decline. Right. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you, you know, you, you know I, I try to, you know, when I talk to the, the green, I say, you got to give people a vision of how life can be better. You know, yes, you can have a single family house, but you can do like we've done now with two houses. You can drought resist your yard. You can, you know, you can take certain steps to make that work. You can work at home. You can, you know, you can do many things that improve the quality of life and the environment. Mm. But you've got to do it in the context of how people actually want to live. Mm. But that what you have instead is you have a, a class of people who are in some cases at very wealthy and in other cases 
don't have children or you know 28 years old and you know the sort of AOCs of the world um, you know the the kind of this belief that um, you know I you know if you don't believe what I believe you know you're destroying the planet you know how medieval is that worldview so, so maybe because you mentioned her and and it might be worth to finish on uh, the question of what, what, what you think of the, these ideas of Green New Deal, whether you buy into some notion of that, uh, and how maybe that relates to the Californian, Californian dream. I mean, for me at least, they seem, it seems conceivable that one could have both, uh, that one could have uh, a more decarbonized system with greater public transport, but as well as build out of, of housing and uh, of public services necessary to give people a higher standard of living. Well, uh, I'm first do you all, think they're contradictory? I, I, I think they're, they're contradictory in the world called reality. Um, you know, if you're going to have super high energy prices, you're not going to have any industry. You know, industry is not going to come here. I mean, you look at the semiconductor industry, essentially a California developed industry. Almost all the new semiconductor plants are in other states or other countries. Those produce, you know, I've been to plants in Utah run by Intel with thousands of really good jobs, middle-class jobs, but they're in Utah. Um, the other thing, now, where I, I give uh, her credit is she does at least deal with the class ramifications. The problem is, do you think the board of the Sierra Club would like those taxes? <laughs> I doubt it. That's um, an alliance which maybe needs to be broken, but <laughs> well, I mean, there is that that contradiction. The other the other thing is, you know, some of her ideas are just insane. Like, you know, we're going to get rid of planes and we're going to do high speed rail. We can't even make high speed rail work here, and it, you know, the United States is just too big a country. I mean, even at decent speeds, it would take fifteen hours to get from here to Chicago, at mm-hmm. in the most optimal system. And, you know, if you can fly there in three hours, you're going to take a train for 15. I doubt it. Um, You're going to wipe out the aerospace industry completely. Um, You're going to uh, you're going to get rid of the fossil fuel industry, one of the highest paid um, uh, middle class unionized industries in this country. Um, You know, so there are there are lots of contradictions. And I think what's missing is a sense of, of sort of starting off by saying the purpose of a society is to make life better. For, its, for the people who live in that society. And we've completely lost that. Mm. It's all about virtue signaling and sort of these utopian visions that end up with dystopian results. And if you don't believe that, I suggest you go to downtown Los Angeles and see the towers that have been built that are owned almost exclusively by, by foreigners who are just building, buying what a friend of mine calls vertical safe deposit boxes, mm-hmm. uh, and all the homeless. If homelessness is not a sign that something's wrong, I don't know what is. All of you, your kids will meditate in school. Your kids will meditate in school. California, Uber Alice. All right, that's it for part three of Calibunga, Tech, Drugs, and Capitalist Soul. If you like what you've heard, consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com bungacast. This will give you access to the paywalled parts of this series, as well as all of our regular subscriber-only shows. If you're not in a position to do that, do give the podcast a review on our Facebook page or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We are at BungaCast everywhere you may find us on the internet. We're back in a week with more Calibunga, exploring European encounters with California, more on Silicon Valley ideology and the rationalization of social life. Catch you then. Bye-bye.
Close your eyes, can't happen here. Big bro on his white horse is near. Oh, the hippies won't come back, you say? Mellow out, Jack, or you will pay. A mellow out, or you will pay. California, Uber Alice. California, Uber Alice. Uber Alice. California, 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 Uber Alice. California,